Welcome. I'm Eric Fleming, host of A Moment with Eric Fleming, the podcast of our time. I want to personally thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, then I need you to do a few things. First, I need subscribers. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming. Your subscription allows an independent podcaster like me the freedom to speak truth to power and to expand and improve the show. Second, leave a five-star review for the podcast on the streaming service you listen to it. That will help the podcast tremendously. Third, go to the website, momenteric.com. There you can subscribe to the podcast, leave reviews and comments, listen to past episodes, and even learn a little bit about your host. Lastly, don't keep this a secret like it's your own personal guilty pleasure. Tell someone else about the podcast. Encourage others to listen to the podcast and share the podcast on your social media platforms because it is time to make this moment a movement. Thanks in advance for supporting the podcast of our time. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. I'm excited because I have a guest, right? And I I wanted this brother to come on because he's got a project that's coming up that we need to support. Um, And we need to get something from this project. Um, Brother's name is Commit Shockley. He is a professor. Uh, and I'll get into all his formal introduction, but he's put together this documentary uh, that we're going to get into in the interview. And, you know, after the interview, we'll talk a little bit about its importance some more. And during the interview, we'll be able to know when it's coming on. But um, just seeing the trailer for this, uh, This is something that we need to get involved with. So I'm going to interview him. And then um, I'm going to talk about something that I overheard. Something somebody said that I respect a lot um, um, that I disagree with concerning democracy. So we'll get into that in the second half of the show. But in this first half, let me introduce this brother, Dr. Commit G. Shockley. He is an inspiring educator and visionary filmmaker whose passion for storytelling and advocacy is leaving an indelible mark on the world of cinema. With a diverse portfolio of thought-provoking films, Shockley's works reflect his dedication to shedding light on critical social issues. Throughout his career, Commit Shockley has been involved in the creation and co-creation of several impactful films such as Cultural War, Focus on Black Youth, and For Humanity, Culture, Community, and Maroonage. These projects have not only entertained audiences but also sparked essential conversations about depressing challenges in urban communities. In addition to his remarkable filmmaking endeavors, Shockley has also graced the screen as part of the hit series Hidden Colors, showcasing his versatility and talent as an educator and storyteller. His artistry has been recognized with prestigious awards, notably earning accolades from John Hopkins University for his masterful classical piano performances. The depth of his artistic expression knows no bounds as he continuously seeks to push the boundaries of creativity. Beyond his work in film and music, Shockley has been a prolific writer, focusing on education and youth-related subjects. His co-edited book on the education of urban youth received double honors, exemplifying his commitment to making a positive impact through local knowledge sharing. Locally and beyond, Commit G. Shockley has earned the esteemed title of living legend in Cincinnati, Ohio, 
where his contributions to the arts, the struggle, and education have touched countless lives. Ever the ambitious artist, Shockley is tirelessly striving to become a documentarian of the highest order, aiming to capture humanity's stories with authenticity, 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 and passion. Through his lens, he seeks to continue championing the voices of the unheard, shedding light on untold narratives, and inspiring positive change on a global scale. As a filmmaker, educator, and visionary, Commit G. Shockley's journey is a testament to the power of storytelling to inspire, educate, and uplift, leaving an enduring legacy for generations to come. All right, made it through that intro, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. It is my honor and distinct privilege to have as a guest on this podcast, Dr. Commit G. Shockley. All right, Dr. Commit Shockley. How you doing, brother? You doing good? Brother, I cannot complain. Doing all right. How about yourself? I, I, I wish I was like you, brother, traveling all over the world. I understand you're in Africa as we talk. As we speak, I am in Ghana. Yes, sir. All right. <laughs> yeah, I, well, it's always good to, to have somebody with your intellect on the show. I, I pride myself on getting people smarter than me to come on. Um. So I, I hope I can live up to that. <laughs> oh, I, I, I have no doubt. I have no doubt that you'll do that. Um, one of the things I like to do with my guests, um, you know, is I, if I can find a quote that kind of relates to their work or something that they may have said or something, I usually throw that at them and, and, and let them respond. So your quote is going to be this. And I, and I found this. There was a school in um, in New York, and uh, and I'm probably going to say the name wrong. Wuze Sule. Uh, it was it's, it changed to Johnson Preparatory School, uh, but people Wuze. like MC, how, huh? How do you, how do you spell the the Wuze part? W e u s i. Oh, Wuze Shule. Yeah, Wuze Shule. That's it, and. Uh, so this was on their wall. So I don't know if you had visited there or not, but so you may be familiar with it if you have. But it says, we are the children of great ancient Africans. We are an African people. We are brave. We are strong. We are beautiful and determined. We know no limits in education. We will continue to grow in strength and numbers, and we will always love each other. What does that quote mean to you? To me, that's a quote that's about identity. It's a quote that's about power. It's a quote that's about Pan-Africanism. So I, I, I hear identity, power, and Pan-Africanism, that what the children are reciting is that they are African people, that Malcolm X was correct, that once the boat landed, uh, the people who were on the boat are the same thing as what they were <clears throat> when the boat took off, and that we still have that connection in relation to our identity as people of African descent. Uh, I hear power. I hear that they are saying we're self-defining, that we are, we use Kuji Chagalia or self-determination, the second principle of uh, the Nguzo Saba, which is part of Kwanzaa. They're saying we have the power to determine who we are, even though other people may choose to have names for us or want to name us, we have the power to name ourselves. Uh, and then I hear Pan-Africanism, that there is a connection between who we are as people, regardless of where we happen to be on the planet, and who other Black people are around the world. I'm here in Ghana, as we said at the beginning, and you would really be surprised at how similar, particularly in spirit, the people in Ghana are to people in Detroit and in Chicago and DC and in Houston and just wherever we are, there's such a similarity once you get past preferences in food and uh, perhaps accents and things of that nature. Uh, really underneath it all is really a very common people with an interesting and unique and important connection. So that's what I hear them reciting. 
So one of the reasons why I wanted to use that quote, because you're here to talk about a docu-series that you're involved with uh, called Cultural War Focus on Black Youth. And yeah. um, uh, go ahead and explain to the listeners what is the premise behind this docu-series. So this is a docu-series that really focuses on what's been happening to our young people in the field of education, to young Black children, uh, young boys, and, and young girls. The, the docu-series also focuses on what is happening with our teachers, people who teach Black students in schools. It focuses on the experiences of parents and families who are struggling in schools across the country. Uh, it also focuses on scholars and the things they're writing and the warnings and the questions that they ask and the things that scholars are trying to say must happen in order for us to save our children from repeating the over again history that has been happening to us since the time we got to the United States. So the docuseries really takes a look at all of that and makes major suggestions about change. This is a docuseries where I would say probably 40% of it is about the solutions. Now, the solu solutions that are presented don't have to be taken by people, but they're there. Uh, so what people may not know is that there is that education is one of those areas where the black community has solutions to its problem. And I say that because we see through all kinds of things from black students experiences who have attended culturally centered schools to black students test scores on test score, major mainstream test scores, as well as ones that have been developed by the black community. That's white and black test scores uh, and, so, and, and how well they do on those things. Um, we also see that black children in those schools are nurtured and they're cared for. So what I do is talk to the people who run those schools. In addition to all the other stuff I said the documentary does, people who run those schools are in the documentary talking about what they do, how they do it, and what's important at this moment in history. So what we're trying to do with this documentary is to find a way uh, to begin to bring an end to a problem, to solve the problem of the miseducation of Black children. It's called, again, cultural war, focus on Black youth. The argument I'm making in part is that the society, American society, has sort of waged a war on the Black community, and in particular on Black youth with some of the things that we see happening to Black youth. And that it's Black adults' responsibility, firstly, to stop that war or to fight in that war or to win that war, however you want to see it. So the film offers suggestions for all of that. And then one of the, th one of the other things that the film does is provide some of the history that gets left out of texts when we start talking about social studies textbooks. I'm a former uh, school teacher and I used to teach social studies and I have students who are current social studies teachers. And the, when the, I work in a program that has master's and doctoral students and I teach principals and superintendents, et cetera. And one of the things that I know is that from talking to them and being around their work is that not much has changed in what's going on in schools now than what was going on in schools back then. Even while you have the governor of Florida and leaders and governors in other places trying to pretend as though some major woke movement is happening in schools that's bringing in critical race theory and that is making white people uncomfortable. None of that is actually happening, none of it. Uh, so what we have here is lies and what the film does is expose the truth and also expose that not only is none of that going on, actually it's getting worse in our schools. So that's what the, the film is doing. Because it, 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 it touches on several questions I have. One of them, um, in the promotional ad, you make the claim that population changes by race and ethnicity bring lethal battles to the streets and the schools. Uh, to go deeper into that. 
Well, we can certainly see that uh, the population changes in the United States have uh, people of European descent, many of them worried about things that they shouldn't be worried about, but are worried about changes that are going that are in to what may come to privilege, frank, frankly. So a number of privileges uh, are threatened, but I think that the worry is really also about whether or not groups of people will do to them what they've done to other people. So those, those population changes and those data that we're all aware of, the negative population growth of the white community around the world, next to the positive population growth of other people around the world. If you just read uh, uh, with the, uh, Death of the West, really an interesting book written by Pat Buchanan, uh, it was it's, it's at least 15, 20 years old now, mm -hmm. but it really foretells all of this and then sends a warning to the white community. He speaks directly to the white community saying that the population of non-white people is rapidly increasing next to the population, a decreasing population of white people. So we're now living in a time where those 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 numbers are becoming real. So what the film is really doing and what we're saying here is that those those changes in population are causing the death that we now see, the blood spilling in the streets of the United States. And unfortunately, what we see is that a lot of times that blood is being spilt in schools. Uh, and it's unreal that people are going into school buildings and shooting and killing children because they're insecure and because they have a mental problem. Uh, and I think that racism is a mental problem, and I think that that's where a lot of it comes from. Even recently, we had the killing that we saw in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, where just a young man went to, into a Dollar General store, but first he tried to go to a, a university right. and kill people. And it's interesting that these folks targeting the younger people, the younger Black people. And uh, so... Those population changes are are are, are have a blood is is just flowing like a river in our streets and our schools, so that's the reason for the subtitle for the film, and we do talk about that in the film, and we have experts come on and um, explain that phenomenon. Well, all right. So I noticed one of the contributors in your documentary was Dr. Jawanza Kanjufu. And in his book, Developing Positive Self-Images and Discipline in Black Ch Children, he starts with this premise. The inescapable reality is and always has been that the liberation of African-Americans is dependent upon an effective education. We emphasize effective because so much of our education has been virtually useless in accomplishing the objective of liberation. The process of miseducation as described by Dr. Carter G. Woodson in 1931, has continued to impede our progress as an educated people. Dr. Woodson's conclusion that the majority of educated blacks were all but quote-unquote worthless in the uplift of our people remains an issue of deadly accuracy. His analysis was that the, that the seat of the trouble was in what African Americans were being taught. So I'm going to put it in two questions. Uh, one, mm -hmm. define effective, and two, do we have to have a culturally centered education pathway for Black youth for them to be successful? In terms of what our children actually need, um, what our children need is an education that teaches them how to solve problems. In fact, as what all groups do is they teach their children the three R's, of course, you need your math, your social studies, your science and all of that. But you use all of those things to teach you how to solve problems. So what's happening in our community is that our children aren't being taught the things they need. First of all, they're getting the most inexperienced teachers. The data show that black children get the most inexperienced teachers in the classroom. Um, so the teachers who know the least often. Okay, so... That's one thing. But then the other thing is they're not getting teachers who have the con consciousness, the cultural consciousness to teach them how to solve problems in the community, because many of the teachers they have aren't situated mentally in such a way that they 
involve themselves in the community. <clears throat> so you have to, you, you, what we want is teachers who are grounded in the black community, teaching our young people. They're not getting that. In fact, in many buildings where I've done research and taught as a teacher myself, many of the teachers see themselves as being very separate from dis and distinct from the children, because often there are, um, uh, what, would you, what would you say, uh, issue, economics, differences in economics, differences in the, I can't think of the word, but differences in economic levels and uh, socioeconomics are different. So what we need is people who can actually relate to the children. So we have a lot of people who don't relate to the children coming from lots of different cultural backgrounds. So how to solve problems becomes one of the most important things. If the education is not African-centered, or sometimes as I call it culturally, but the culture I'm speaking of is African cultures, if it's not African-culturally centered, the problem is it's going to be centered in some culture. Uh, there is no such thing as something being acultural. So everything is cultural. The question becomes, whose culture is, is being used to teach our children? And right now, it's, what's being taught to them are two things. One, European culture, how to think, act, believe, and have the value systems of people of European descent. And they're being sometimes thrown at them a bastardized version of Black culture that actually is not Black. It's not African. It's what some people have, have dreamed up in their minds is who we are, when it actually has no, no, no there's no connection between it and who we are. Some people literally think that Black culture is saying uh, the B word, calling women H's, and calling Black men N's, that that's our culture. It's not our culture, that's our reaction to the system of racism, white supremacy, which I put in my book in 2008. And people have to really understand the difference between those two things. So that's what, that's what we need, and that's why we need the African-centered education. It's the only type of education that gives Black children the three R's as well as the cultural aspect that they need. Right. And in the trailer, you, you highlight some of those students and some of the things that they are doing. Um, but one of the things that was highlighted was that you gave educators, teachers tests in Black history and tests in traditional U.S. or world history, I guess. And mm -hmm. it was, it was, a. what does it say that educators did better on a white history test than a black history test? Yeah, they, all of the teachers that I have worked with probably over the course of the last 10 to 12 years in professional development, as well as teaching teachers and the teachers that are in the documentary took what I call the teacher's test as well, calling it a, the culture test. And it developed initially by a man named Fahim Ashanti. And then I kind of changed some of it. And with the help of some elders, added some questions in that become important to anyone who's going to be teaching Black youth. And then I took some of the questions that are inspired by things like the standardized achievement test. And we kind of weighted the questions so that they would be somewhat equally somewhat equal in terms of uh, the kinds of things they're asking about. And most of the teachers passed the white American, which we mix white American and European questions, and they passed that with at least a C. Most teachers get a B or an A on that. On the, on the Black, which we mix with African, some African cultural stuff and some Black American stuff, the teacher's average grade is an F. Uh, a couple times teachers receive a D and we've had a couple folks get a C. I haven't had among any of the teachers that I've given the test to any A's or B's on the African and African-American culture test. And when we say uh, teachers, you're so talking this, about, we, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but it, when we're saying teachers, no, we're not just talking about white teachers. We're talking about black teachers too. <laughs> I tested black, white, Latino, and Asian teachers. And they've been a mix and in the film, you'll see that mix uh, of folks. And some of them are school administrators. Uh, so yeah, there's, nobody is able to pass the Black or African-American, Black slash African-American culture test. 
So it raises the question of what 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 can we expect from our students if the teachers people if the people teaching them don't really know them they don't know the culture they don't know who the students are so what people put in the space where they don't know are stereotypes and things that come from television and I know that just even here in Africa so it's unfortunate but um, as I talk to Africans here in the country. I, on this trip and the one before have started asking questions about what they know about African-Americans. And what I find is that almost everything they know is coming from the television. It is almost all negative. And they also know very little about themselves. They're not really, they're not learning a lot. Of, I'm in Ghana and many, many Ghanaians don't know Ghanaian history. Uh, they have a version of Ghanaian history that comes from the European textbooks that are being shipped to them from Europe. And so they have negative ideas about African-Americans, many, just like we do, because we don't learn about ourselves. And they have negative ideas about themselves. But here, what one of the contrasts that I find to be very unfortunate and interesting is you'll find more people here and when I, I found this when I was in Nigeria and Senegal as well, with a very, very positive uh, idea about white people and white culture and European culture, very positive. Uh, in the United States, you, 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 you might not necessarily have that. You, you, you might have more of a mix of what people think about whites and this, and they have some of the history that kind of know some of the things that have been done but less of a mix here. In fact, I even talked to a group of four young black guys that were probably in their 20s, and I was asking them about intelligence. And they were saying that they're not intelligent. And, and I asked about white people. They said white people are smart and they help us get a job. They bring jobs to the area. Um, and so, you know, there's lots of stuff going. We could do a documentary on the educational system here and probably find out some very interesting things. But yeah, it's a sad state of affairs in relation to where we are uh, in terms of self-knowledge. Right. And and that's that's kind of the the misnomer that's out there that the, in the political sense is that th there is a certain group of folks that are trying to say that people like you and, and, and other educators from the African-American community, like Kimberly Crenshaw and all these other folks, they're trying to indoctrinate their children or trying to teach them how to hate themselves. When in reality, the indoctrination has been reversed. And the struggle is trying to make sure that black children in America, and as you point out in Ghana and maybe some other African countries, that they don't hate themselves. And that's, that's really the challenge that you and other educators are trying to address. Exactly. And I think that one of the reasons why you see this pushback is because in education, we have actually made a little bit of headway. We are getting some information to Black children uh, and other children, but we are getting information to them that runs contrary to the, the idea that we are whatever Ron DeSantis thinks we are. And so what they're trying to do is figure out a way to take it back to make sure that generations that are coming forward will also be self-hating and subservient. Uh, so it's really going to be, a, 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 it's going to be incumbent upon the community, the Black community, to make sure that their children get what they need, because we're not effectively fighting against the school systems to make sure that they don't shut down the rays of light that have come in from those people who have been fighting for a different kind of education for black children in the United States. I mean, it's been very little actually that has happened. I mean, it's not a, it's not tons of stuff, but there have been some things that have gotten through and they want to shut those things down. Uh, so I am, um, I think that the black community has to have the attitude that there is a cultural war being waged against them. I don't think that we can just call it racism. I don't think that's in our interest to just say it's racist. This is more of an act of war and an attempt to, to keep us 
in the current situation. They're not, I, I think of it in that way because the reason I use the, the language war or cultural war is because of the real, what is the really the truly the impact of, of making sure that people always see themselves in such a way that they would like to harm themselves in the street so that we would hate ourselves so much that an image of ourselves makes us want to shoot and kill, have no patience with ourselves and have patience though with others. So that means we have people committing crime against us who look like us and who don't look like us. If that's not war, I don't know what is. Well, since you brought up the term cultural war and that's the name of this docuseries, tell folks um, where they can see this, when they can see it, and uh, you know, just just plug it. Just 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 tell the listening I audience. Have great where news on. <laughs> sure, I have great news on where you can see it. When you can see it will be soon, but not now. Um, so the the so far the documentary has been licensed by um, Amazon Prime, so you'll be able to see it on Amazon Prime. You also will be able to see the documentary on Tubi. Tubi has uh, decided to offer license for the documentary. And there are there are other places that you'll be able to see it, but I can't announce them yet because it's there's nothing signed. So I, Amazon Prime and Tubi are, present super huge audiences and easy access. I think that if you have an account at Tubi, you can actually watch most things for free. Um, if not everything, I'm not totally sure on that, but I think you can watch most of the things for free. So you can watch my documentary for free once it, once it's out. And, um, you, I think that people are going to be informed. So check to be, I would say it should be up on both no more than probably three to four weeks. But if you go to culturalwarfilm.com, culturalwarfilm.com, there'll be updates on there. And you uh, you can sort of check it now that when you look at the website now, there's not a ton on there. But over the course of the next week and a half to two weeks, that website's going to be changing. And as long as it looks like it looks, the film is not out on Tubi or Amazon yet. But once it once once you see the changes, that that'll also correlate with uh, when it's available on Amazon.com and Tubi. Well, I, I look for another place. Yes, sir. And I, I look forward to, to, to watching it in full. The, the, the trailer uh, is on the website. It's about 11 minutes long. So that's going to give you a real good gist, y'all, about what this is about. And, and it highlights yeah. some people. Uh, but I, I, I really am encouraging the listeners to, to stay on top of that and, and, and find out and, I'm sure Dr. Sharkley is going to let me know either via email or whatever uh, when it's going to come out so I can plug it on the podcast and stuff. Most certainly will. You'll be one of the first to know. <laughs> all right, brother. Well, look, I know we, we dealing with different time zones and all this stuff. So I appreciate you coming on. Um, and uh, hopefully we can, we can get you on again to kind of, you know, do some follow up and see what kind of feedback you've been getting from it. Um, and maybe just talk about some other things that are going on in the community, especially in the in the realm of education. Indeed. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Yes, sir. It's been my honor. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. So I'm glad that uh, we were able to get Dr. Shockley uh, on to talk about uh, this new documentary that he's going to be doing. Um, I think that it's going to be very important uh, for people to understand what is really, really going on with our children 
in education. A lot of us know, and a lot of us have been making these kind of decisions. I know as being a former legislator, talking to black parents who had kids in public schools, black parents who had kids in private schools, Christian schools, um, homeschooling, you know, the general gist, and, and even African-centered schools, right? Um, the general gist is that parents, it doesn't matter what their income level in the black community, they want their kids to have the best possible education, period. It doesn't matter about economics, doesn't matter about whether they went to college or not. These parents want their kids to succeed. And I've, I've, you know, on the rare occasion you run into folks that don't care one way or the other, you deal with that. And you try to convince them one way or the other to do it. But the overwhelming majority, and, and, and that's just not black people. Let's get that straight. I've run into a lot of white folks that could care less whether their kids go to school or not. You know? Um, and that's a real tragedy in America because even Thomas Jefferson felt, right? And I, and I bring that up. And, and one of the things that they were highlighting in the trailer for this film, Cultural War, Focus on Black Youth, was that kids could grasp calculus by the time they were 10 years old, right? And, and, and you know, if, if you are rigorous and thorough and compassionate and patient with children, they will respond to you. I know everybody's got, well, this generation's different, blah, blah, this and the other. The reality is, is that children are children. And if you are patient with them, if you are tolerant with them, if you are compassionate with them, they will learn. And the, the quicker that you can get them into a program that is beneficial for them, the better they will be. And in the long term, so will society, right? So the name of the docu-series is going to be Cultural War, Focus on Black Youth, right? So look for that. It's going to be on Tubi and it's going to be on Amazon Prime for sure, as he mentioned, and just if you have any of those services, just kind of look for, you know, when it's going to come out. It'll probably be, as we're airing this, this is the beginning of September. So, you know, either the end of this month, end of September or the beginning of October, it should be on those platforms, if not others. Right. So. You can go to that website he mentioned, or you can go to YouTube and type in cultural war, focus on black youth, and you can get the trailer on YouTube too. So just check that trailer out. And when the docu-series comes out, and like I said, if he lets me know when, and I can get it on the podcast, as soon as he lets me know, I'll put it on the podcast and let y'all know, right? So... That's that. I mean, and, and that was important. And I'm, again, I'm really glad uh, we were able to get that interview. So I want to read something, kind of start off my rant for the second half. And this was a letter written by District Attorney Fonnie Willis, who's the District Attorney in the Atlanta Judicial Circuit. She is the district attorney who has charged Donald Trump and 18 other folks with RICO charges concerning the 2020 election in the state of Georgia. <sighs> and this letter is written to, I, I kind of laugh because this letter is written to Jim Jordan. Now, y'all, if y'all listen to podcasts, most of y'all pretty much know who this guy is. And I say guy 
because my initial compunction is to say clown. And that may not be a nice thing to say, but I think it's pretty accurate. Given the, the antics that he and others have put on in, in trying to defend the indefensible, right? Uh, Mr. Jordan is head of the Judiciary Committee, and he has used his position to go after every district attorney or attorney general that is trying to put Donald Trump in jail. And he has subpoenaed them. I mean, he's even had the audacity to go after Jack Smith, the special prosecutor that Merrick Garland hired to investigate, not only dealing with January 6th and the insurrection, but also the documents case. Yes, that case is still out there, ladies and gentlemen. That's the one that's in Florida with Judge Cannon trying to do her best to help Donald Trump. So... Um, Jordan has basically been the hit hit man uh, trying to subpoena and harass these district attorneys. So, you know, you know, he went up to New York after Alvin Bragg and had this hearing supposedly about crime in New York and what Alvin Bragg should be doing all this, right? So, he tried it with District Attorney Willis. Now, I'm not going to read the whole letter because it's nine pages long, right? So you can imagine how pissed off somebody has to be to write a response to you, and it's nine full pages, right, of rebuttal. That so let me let me just read the beginning and then you'll get the gist of it, right? So it says, Dear Mr. Jordan, I have received your letter dated August 24, 2023. On August 14, 2023, a Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment charging 19 defendants with felony violations of Georgia law, including violation of Georgia's Racketeering Influence Corrupt Organization Act, which is Georgia RICO. Beyond that recitation of the charges, your letter contains inaccurate information and misleading statements. The true bill of indictment returned on August 14, 2023 is attached as Exhibit A. And the first sub, the first title, subtitle, I guess, of the letter is your attempt to interfere with an obstruction. This office. Yeah, your attempt to interfere with an instruction. This office's prosecution of the state criminal cases is unconstitutional. As you know, Chairman Jordan, the congressional power of inquiry is not unlimited, and she cites Watkins v. United States. Congress is not a law enforcement or trial agency. That function is reserved only for the executive and judicial departments of government. Moreover, investigations conducted solely for the personal aggrandizement of the investigators or to punish those investigated are indefensible. More fundamentally, a congressional subpoena, subpoena is valid only if it is related to and in furtherance of a legitimate task of Congress. And she cites uh, Trump versus Mazars in that one, right? And then she says in the next sentence, your letter offends each and every one of these settled principles. And the letter does not get any nicer from that point forward. 
Um, so let me tell you where we are, in my humble opinion. And, and I want to take umbrage to somebody that I have a great deal of respect for. Um, as a matter of fact, I just interviewed her boss um, last episode. But Danielle Moody came on her podcast and basically said that democracy is over with, as we know it. Um, when I read a letter like what Fonnie Willis just sent to Jim Jordan, I would beg to differ. I get her frustration. I get her point. Uh, every time you turn on the news and you hear somebody ignorant like Jim Jordan or Ted Cruz or Marjorie Taylor Greene or just pick one, right? Um, you, you tend to think that there is no hope. And, you know, the way Joe Biden is just, President Biden is just doing his thing and not really addressing a lot of the criminal charges and all of the shenanigans that the Republicans are throwing out there. People are frustrated because they, they, they want him to, to go back at them and all that. But somebody said something on a, on a show I was watching that was very, very telling to me in a good way. He said, and this guy used to be a speechwriter for a president. He said, a president's words are valuable. Therefore, you can't just go out there and just say any and everything whenever you feel like it. A president's words are measured, right? And I agree with that. Uh, as much as I would like to, you know, go after, uh, if I was a president, as much as I, and I, and I used to joke that with my friends when Obama was president, I said that they picked the right black guy. Cause if I was in that position, I don't think I would have handled it the way that he handled it. I don't think I would have held my tongue the way that he held his. Um, and in this day and age, I know with the crazy that's going on there, I don't even know if I would have a press secretary, <laughs> you know, at the white house, I'd be going up to the, uh, the mic over there in the, in the West wing in the press conference room. And I would, I would probably be addressing the media a lot, especially when you, you know, in Biden's case, where you keep referring to his family as a criminal family, knowing good and well that the person that you're supporting has done more criminal things than any president ever, right? And we're talking people like Warren G. Harding and, you know, you know, all these folks that were tied up with, you know, the Chester A. Arthur's, all these people that were tied up in political machines that got to the White House, right? This, this guy literally lives up to his name and trumps them all, right? And you want to defend him by saying your opponent's family is crooked when really there's only one person. And, and the special prosecutor that's going after Hunter is going after him. He's literally going to charge him with something or try to get a grand jury to put an indictment on Hunter Biden that a federal judge said the law he wants to use is unconstitutional. But that's a game of appeasement, right? To try to, to try to calm these crazy folks down and say, Oh no, well the justice department is, is not biased. Look, Democracy is not dead because Fonnie Willis is an elected official. <laughs> Democracy is not dead because I see legislators in Tennessee. I see legislators in Florida. I see legislators in Mississippi. I see legislators in Montana. Right? Standing up for what is right. 
And no matter what the opposition tries to do to them, they do not back down. Democracy is dead when these folks are no longer in a position to do anything. And democracy is not dead when I see average citizens, right? Whether it's the people in Jacksonville booing Ron DeSantis when he dares shows up at a, at a memorial rally or the folks marching in the streets, whether it's about police violence, whether it's about the, the actors and the writers going on strike, right? The auto workers and UPS talking about striking. The folks dealing with Starbucks and, and, and Amazon trying to unionize. All those are acts of democracy that are really, really happening in real time right now. And the myriad of people like me who are using this podcasting platform to get out here and convey the message is a sign to me that democracy is not dead. There is no way, and, and I say this in the most altruistic way I can say it, there is no way that democracy is going to die quietly in the United States. If it is going to die, it is going to be a battle. Now, it may not be a battle like Mike Huckabee and Sarah Palin and all these other folks want it to be, right? Because they want it to be violent because they figure they got all the guns. That's the way that they're acting. But the reality is, is that we have a holiday for a man who showed you that we can win without engaging in another civil war. We can take to the streets. We can do sit-ins. We can do protests. We can do boycotts. We can do a lot of things to shut this down. Most importantly, we can show up at town hall meetings. We can vote. We can put amendments. We can sign petitions. We can do everything we can because we have that right here in the United States to say what we want to say, no matter how uncomfortable it makes them, because they don't care about our comfort, right? And the American history has shown that when, when the people get tired of a political party, they can deem them irrelevant. It has happened before. That is the whole reason why I had that episode about the return of the good feelings era, right? Because there literally was a time in the United States where the people of the United States ignored a political party, made them irrelevant, in which basically they had to dissolve. And that's how we ended up getting a Republican Party, because some of them created a new party. Right. And this is not the first time where we've had people concerned about third party candidates messing up having an incumbent president that people felt like was doing a good job was 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 keeping the country as stable as they can right and you know cuz literally in 1948 we had an election we had an incumbent president, Harris Truman. We had a strong Republican opponent, Thomas Dewey, who was a former governor, I think, in New York, where I know he was a district attorney at one point. And then you had a former vice president run as a third-party candidate, and you had a U.S. senator running as a third-party candidate, right? Strom Thurmond. He ran on the states' rights party, Right? So that was where, if if we were in this time, that's where the MAGA people would line up with Strom Thurmond. And then you had the Harry Wallace, who was uh, the vice president before Truman under Roosevelt, 
he ran as the Progressive Party candidate. And I would guess that's where the more radical left people would line up with in today's world. So you had these four people running that had a national profile. And Harry Truman won that. Now, the pundits were saying that Dewey was going to win, and even to the point where they pre-printed headlines, the Chicago Tribune was most notable, and saying Dewey defeats Truman, and that the classic picture of Truman holding that up as he's giving his victory speech, <laughs> acknowledging that he's been reelected, right? So I know we listen to the pundits, and I guess I can be considered a pundit since I'm doing my own little opinions on this show. But they don't necessarily get it right. I know I don't get it right all the time. I, I weigh in. I, I, I listen to what people are saying. I talk to people. I get to interview folks. But, you know, when, when people go in that voting booth, it's just absolutely amazing in that little private moment that you have how you make a decision that changes the history of this nation. And you have done it time and time again. This country has been a full democracy since the 1970s. Right? I'd say, I think it was 72 when 18-year-olds could vote. Right? So a lot of people say 65, but even then you had to be 21. So when they lower the age to 18, that's really when it became the truest democracy. So college students could vote. Right. Or people old enough to be drafted really was the sentiment. They were old enough to fight for the country. They should be able to vote for who the commander in chief is. Anybody else that makes decisions in their lives. Right. So we've been this democracy for 50 some years. This true democracy. And we've been able to navigate through all the crazy stuff or what we thought was crazy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get through this. Donald Trump is right. He got 75 million votes and that's a lot of people. But Joe Biden, Joe Biden got 81 million, right? 81 million people said enough of this Trump stuff. And I tend to think that Donald Trump has not done anything in the four years that he's been out of office, the three years he's been out of office, I guess, to bump his numbers up past 75 million. I don't think he's done that. And I really think that Joe Biden hasn't done anything to piss off the 81 million people. I don't think when it comes down to it, because a lot of people that are complaining about Joe Biden, to be honest, don't vote. And if they do vote, right, because they brag about not voting. And if they do vote, they're not voting for Trump. They're going to vote for whoever no labels throws out there or some Jill Stein type person. I don't know. Right. And I would like for Jill Stein or some of these other folks to come on. Uh, if if I could reach them, you know, because. I, I got some questions. Like you got out here and ran. For president. And then you were having dinner with Vladimir Putin. So what was your motive? That that would be a question I would want to ask her. Right. But, you know, and, and, and then you got Marion Williamson, who I, I think Marion Williamson is a legit candidate. I think she has, when I say legit, meaning that she has a, a true altruistic motive as to why she wants to be president. I don't think she's trying to do anything to hurt. Right. What we're trying to do. If she doesn't agree with Joe Biden, she's a Democrat. So if she doesn't agree with Joe Biden, she'll run against him. If she, Joe Biden beats her, then she's going to support him. That's her MO, 
right? Robert F. Kennedy Jr., not so much. I don't trust him. You know, uh, at a point in time in my life, me and him probably jihad pretty good. But not the way he's talking now. And and the way that these folks are trying to manipulate and, and twist things around, you know, and trying to change truth, right? That, yeah, I don't trust them. So when it comes down to it, the fact that there are enough people, there are millions of people out here that do not want anything to do with MAGAism, Trumpism, that cult, whatever, Republicans, all that. They don't want to be bothered with that. And so my hope is, is that, that those folks who are getting elected as Republicans now are part of a new group of people that are going to push these folks out of power. I'm praying that's the case. I may not trust them right away, but watching how some of them have been working, I see some of them out there on TV like, oh, Donald Trump's this and this is a witch and all that. It's like, okay, so you're not a new guy. But some of the ones that you ain't really hearing, the ones that are kind of like saying, hey, Speaker McCarthy, you might want to put the reins on some of these crazy folks because I got to get reelected to Congress. And if I don't get in, you can't be Speaker. Right now, McCarthy hasn't listened to those 18. He's still letting Marjorie Taylor Greene and all them Lauren Barbert and Andy Biggs and all them crazy folks do their thing. Right. Jim Jordan, especially. But that goes back to the old adage, you know, with friends like that who needs enemies, enemies. Right. I mean, why would you? <laughs> I mean, your political future is is banking on folks that need to be cast as extras in one floor of the cuckoo's nest, right? If not placed in a real asylum. Because I used to think that a lot of these folks were doing it as an act. Like Ted Cruz, for example, I think he's just an actor. I think he just goes with whatever he thinks the flow is, right? But he's probably put himself in trouble because now they're trying to, the Republicans are trying to impeach a Republican attorney general and he's defending the attorney general against the rest of his party. So, and he's up for re-election in 2024. So, you know, they may circle the wagons for him, but surely somebody has called him and said, why are you doing that? You know what I'm saying? This Paxton dude is not worth that. If we want to get rid of him, he's not the guy that you want to lay down your life for, that you want to take a sword for or a bullet. That's He's not that guy. We've got somebody else in mind that's better, right? You know, and so, so I, I look at people like that to just try to play the wins, but... Unfortunately, there's a lot of true believers that are in these positions. And the only way that we can get these people out is if we get out and vote. And I really wish that, you know, Donald Trump threatens to primary everybody that stands against him. Well, I think the tables need to be turned. And I think that there needs to be people to primary Stefanik and primary Green and primary Bobert and all these other people. Because if the Republicans that I knew, who are now kind of hanging in the independent wind right now, or don't really have a voice in the Republican Party, even if they still say they're Republican, if they go ahead and challenge this Trump machine, who knows what will happen? And then maybe they'll have a chance in 2024 you know, with some of these congressional seats, they may want to save. But I, I, I will, I will venture to say that 
as I'm throwing that out there, that means in my mind that democracy is not dead. Might be in critical condition. Might need some emergency surgery techniques. But it's not dead. And we can never get frustrated enough where we believe that. Because if we think that democracy is lost, then what's going to motivate you to participate? I, I, I watch too many people running for office with good intentions to believe that democracy is dead. I don't buy that. I'm not going to buy that. When when you talk to brothers and sisters like Dr. Shockley, for example, or uh, Professor Ladi, uh, Yazdiha, right, or or any of these people that you know uh, that I've had the privilege of interviewing all you know this time that I've been on this this podcast. These people don't believe that democracy is dead. Not even my Republican friends, the, the libertarian brother, Brother Sharp, you know. They are banking on the fact that democracy is not going to die because they are going to do their part to make sure that it doesn't. So if people in other parties are making that commitment, then those of us that are on the same side as Joe Biden better double down on that. Right? This is not the time to give up. This is not the time to let frustration blind us. This is not the time for us to concede anything. I'm going to quote Deion Sanders. We're coming. We're coming because we believe in November 2024, we're going to say we're here. And we're not going anywhere. Y'all keep that in mind. Democracy is not dead, but it needs our help. Until next time.